Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. Today, our guest is Michael Plax. Today, we're talking about cost segregation or the other side of cost segregation. Michael is a CPA. He is uh, the he's black belt in real estate investing taxes. He, you know, he describes is it he describes his experience for us uh, in the interview. I got in touch with Michael because of a very interesting post that he put on Bigger Pockets. If you're not familiar with Bigger Pockets, it is the biggest online forum for real estate investing. Full stop. If you're if you want to be a real estate investor or you are a real estate investor and you're not on Bigger Pockets get on bigger pockets it's free and uh, a lot of great information on there but he made a post on bigger pockets about a client of his who had a cost seg study done and did not get the results that he felt he was promised by the cost segregation person and michael and i talk about that today i think this is very important because we've talked about cost seg on the show before and i like cost segregation right but I want to make sure that we're bringing the other side of all topics to you so that you can be informed, you can find the right people to get on your team, and you can make your own decisions because we need to understand. We need to understand everything that we're doing. And this is a critical other side of a big topic that's being talked about right now. And like I said, we've had Coseg experts on the show before. This is not about them. This is our responsibility as investors, as clients of cost segregation uh, companies to really understand the value to us that they offer or how to determine that value and, and double check their work in a certain way and know whether we're working with somebody who's being straightforward and honest with us or somebody who's maybe overselling it a little bit, if that makes sense. So. I'm fascinated by this discussion. Uh, like I said, uh, I saw his post on Bigger Pockets. It really blew up, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to read that post. But definitely listen to this discussion and see if you can log it in your mind, remember it in the future, the next time you're considering a cost seg study. Really understand the steps you need to go through to determine whether it's valuable to you or not in the same way that it's being kind of told to you that it's valuable to you. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. We've done cost segregation studies on some of my properties in the past, and I love talking about this topic and really having the best knowledge available to us on this topic. Thanks for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go with Michael Plax. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Taylor. I'll explain this in the introduction, but for the purposes of our conversation here, I originally reached out to you because of a thread that you posted on Bigger Pockets about the other side of cost segregation. And I thought that would be a very interesting topic to present to our listeners. We've talked about cost segregation on the show before, um, but yeah, as you, you point out, that um, there's this other side. It doesn't necessarily benefit everybody the way it's kind of sold to us. I think it's fascinating. Um, we'll get we'll get into that shortly. But for everybody out there who doesn't know about you, can you tell us about what you do in your business and you know your qualifications to uh, talk about this topic? Okay, my qualification is very simple. It's okay. I'm a black belt in real estate taxation. Okay, that's what I, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I go by. Okay, I I'm an accountant. I run a firm for 20 years, tax firm, working exclusively with real estate investors. 
So, and uh, you mentioned bigger pockets is, you know, I'm like fairly well known on bigger pockets and in other online communities. And uh, that's the short story of it 20 years of doing taxes exclusively for real estate investors. I love it. Perfect fit for our topic and our audience today. And, um, you know, can you tell us about this situation with your client um, with regards to this tax, this cost segregation, so we can learn about this case and then get to the broader point of, you know, what you're trying to make about maybe cost segregation is not as great as we're being told. Well, the situation is uh, very simple and very common. Is I have a client and that client ordered cost segregation and it was sold to him as something with huge benefits. It's going to wipe out his huge uh, IRS tax bill. And uh, of course, Uncle Sam is standing right by me waiting uh, to, <laughs> to participate in our discussion. And that's why I wear red gloves like people who don't know me, haven't seen my log is on the log, I'm punching him out. So <laughs> anyway, so, Uncle Sam is here and uh, the promise was, okay, here you get your cost said, you will not owe anything to Uncle Sam because you have 600 grand in deductions from cost segregation in tax savings. Actually, the way it was sold in quote unquote tax savings. So, and when we finished the job, it was uh, less than 10% of what was promised. It was still significant savings. Nobody will walk out on 35 grand of tax savings, yeah. but it was not 600 and client wasn't happy. And so what I posted on bigger pockets and on Facebook and other places, I analyzed that case trying to show how uh, it was sold and why it was extremely misleading, even though the concept itself is very good. Like I'm not bashing cost segregation as a concept. You know, I'm all for it. You know, we do it, recommend it for our clients uh, and we do hire good people like Yona who, uh, Yona Weiss, who was one of your guests, yep. you know? So yeah, there are very good cost segregation people. We gladly refer business to them, but we want our clients to understand what they are buying first. So, and uh, here is my analogy basically. So imagine, like I offer you, Taylor, like some great car accelerator. Perfect. And I show you all of these and I'm saying like, look how fast you can go. But then you are in traffic in city. And what happens <laughs> is like you push it and, and then you are still behind that grandmother in her Buick and you are not, <laughs> and you are not any closer to where you want to be, not any faster. But you paid for that great accelerator, you create a lot of noise, burn a lot of extra gas, and you are arriving at the same time as anybody else. So I want to like a little bit explain the big picture because like you said, the other side, here is why the other side, cost segregation people produce the report, but we are accountants are implementing that. So we want to see like what actually happens once you get that. So uh, should we talk a little about it? Yeah, absolutely. First, you know, before we move on, I want to I want to make sure we hit you know why it sh the report originally showed six hundred grand in cost savings or tax savings, and then in reality he ended up getting thirty five thousand. Thirty five thousand is great, but if you're already thinking six hundred, you know it's a pretty big cut. So I want to make sure we cut we hit that before we you know get a little. Sure, broad. absolutely. So in this particular case, honestly, it was nothing but very shady representation by the 
salesperson, which I broke out uh, on, on my bigger pockets um, post. So what happened there is what they build as cost segregation savings were no cost segregation savings. The table showed how much depreciation you can take off before and after. And actually, forgive me, even though we promised to go into example, let me just stop it for a second. And in case somebody who is listening to us doesn't have an idea about what cost segregation is, the simple story is what cost segregation is normally, you have a slow depreciation and you get a little bit of that. So what cost segregation does is it comes, finds way to depreciate pieces of that property much faster. And when you are looking at the analysis that cost segregation firms give you, they will give you a table that shows this is before, this is after. And you're comparing that before and after. So before it shows, this is all the depreciation you could take before. And look at this. This is all this great depreciation that you can take now. And here is the difference. So the difference is the key word. So if before you could take 10,000 in depreciation, and now you can take 15, your difference is five. Your savings are from extra five grand. But what that report showed first is they apply that to the 15, to the whole amount, which is misleading because you could take advantage from 10,000 before. Well, again, let's not, let's not be bogged down to the numbers. It could be like before it was 5,000, now it's 15. Or before it was five, now it's 25. Fine, whatever, whatever those numbers are, if we are talking about savings, we need to apply savings to the difference. That's number, that's issue number one. Absolutely. Number, number two, relatively minor, was uh, the rate. The rate that was used on the report was 40%. And that depends on two things. That depends where you are, where your income is, what is your tax bracket, and what state you are on. Like my client happened to be in Florida, no state income tax rate. So his actual rate is 24%. So there is a big difference if you calculate it based on 40% on 24. And up to here, it sounds like, okay, those are sort of mild misrepresentations. The biggest one, however, was that when they calculated at 600, what they looked at is the whole table and the whole table takes 30 years. So over 30 years, the entire depreciation you could take would be six, would be worth 600. Guess what? If you don't do cost segregation, how much of benefit you get over 30 years? The same 600. You are not getting, and that's what people do not understand about cost segregation. Now, yes, I know that the next conversation will be nobody holds the property for 30 years. Right, we're not talking about that. But what is happening, you take the same depreciation that normally you would take over 30 years and you just take it much faster. So you front load the first couple of years, the first five years take most of that. And it's most visible in the first two years, as a matter of fact. So you take all of that early, but you still end up taking the same amount. You know, it's like, you know, you got, a, it's like right now in quarantine, you know, we bought a, uh, those two bags for, of snacks for the entire week, but <laughs> one hour later it's gone. You know? <laughs> it's empty. Yeah, so that's that's what is happening right now. You eat from the same bag, you don't get two bags. It's the same bag. You just eat everything right now. 
<laughs> I love that analogy. Yes. Yeah, that's what's happening, right? That is what's happening, and that's what was not explained. So what that 600 represented is lifetime depreciation on the whole thing at an inflated rate without considering the difference between the two. So I don't often, like, if you go to reputable good companies, they won't pull that crap on you. You know, like, I, I honestly believe this was just a very, like, uh, questionable to say it politely, way to sell cost segregation to my client. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, good thing just sold uh, with misrepresentation and a lot of hype uh, surrounding that. And I always prefer to be upfront with, with my clients, you know, when we start working with clients and we have our initial uh, qualification calls and discuss what we can do for you i'm always being very upfront and i like when people are doing the same you know when i'm saying is hey look that's what you expect you know what that is not possible like your expectation is to accomplish that no we can go these we can do this part for you that part will not create a benefit and if now is good time we can talk about like that concept in general perfect go for it continue okay then yeah the whole concept and what I want to put it in, I want to put our conversation in the context and context specifically talking about syndications, because like most of the people who are listening to us right now are in syndications as passive investors or syndicators. So part in that specific context, things are a little bit different. And let me first say, so why they are different? Like what is different there? So if I'm applying cost segregation to a property that I own 100% myself, okay? So I own this multifamily property, like paid a million for that, cost segregated that, so I get like half of that depreciated over a few years, and then I'm selling that. Well, if I'm just selling that, I would have issue of recapturing depreciation. But if I own that property myself, what I can do is I can do a 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. yep. So let's, let's look at numbers again. So I said, I bought that property for a million, depreciated half of that with the help of cost segregation. So I get like half million worth of deductions, you know, up until now. So I only have half million in this property. And right now it appreciated a lot. I can sell it for 2 million. So what would be is I would have two things. I would normally have capital gain on the appreciation from million to two million. Plus I would have to recapture half million worth of depreciation benefits. But right now, if I own that, I can say, you know what? I don't really care that much. I can do a 1031 exchange into a two million bigger property. And all of that will be just rolled into the new property. I will not have any immediate adverse tax hit and uncle sam is standing behind there like crossing, <laughs> crossing him hands and saying is i don't like that of course he doesn't like that because he doesn't get to tax me today on that it rolls into the new property and then from that property i can 1031 into something else and continue going it for my lifetime you know and then finally when i go it goes to my kids and that all all of that old depreciation uh games all of that gets wiped out so that's a pretty good game 
But the problem when we talk about syndication, that game is not possible. There are two parts that are possible. Well, the property goes up in value and we sell it, even if it's a syndication, and I can die. So, okay, those, those two parts are still there. <laughs> what, we, yeah, yeah. what we are missing is the 1031 exchange. Because if you are trying to do a 1031 exchange, only the syndication itself can do it. That means every partner in your group will have to agree that instead of cashing out and reinvesting into something else, we as a group are buying new property. Yes, if you have a group of friends who are continuously investing together, that would work. But in standard syndications, is you get in, you sell, cash out, you are gone. You cannot do 1031. We have a lot of those questions when investors saying is, okay, my syndication sold the property, so I get a huge payout. Can I 1031 it? No, you can't. You cannot do that. And that's important to understand because when the syndication sells the property and normal syndication lifetime is anywhere like, you know, between three to seven years. So let's say five years as an average. So five years later, your syndicator will sell the property and you will have to recapture that capital gain. Again, back to my example. If it was, uh, okay, 10 million property that you depreciated like 4 million out of that. So again, my example, you had initially bought it for 10 million, depreciated 4 million and selling it for 15. So at that point, not only the syndication will pay taxes on capital gain from 10 to 15, but we'll also have to pay depreciation recapture tax, which is higher than capital gain tax, up to 25%, on that 4 million. So, and the syndication does not pay that, the syndication distributes that to active partners. So what happens is the first four years of that syndication, I'm as an active partner getting very nice, attractive K1, that shows losses and I'm happy. You know, I'm like all normal passive investors. I don't want to pay any extra dime to this guy who is standing behind me. <laughs> right. You know, he's, he wants everything and I want to give him nothing. So I'm happy. But year number five, when we sell, he will patiently stand behind me and wait. And in year five, he will get his share. That's what is important to understand. And that creates a question like, uh, you know, do you want us to talk about it? Basically, so what's the point of having cost segregation and syndications? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, the next logical question. So what is the point and, and what, in your opinion, is like the best strategy that as passive investors we should uh, pursue? Well, as passive investors, we don't get to vote oh, you know, yeah. most yeah. of the time. Because really the decision is made by syndicator. And what happens with cost segregation most of the time is like passive investors are basically informed by whatever you call it, the syndicator, the lead partner, you know, what, whatever name you use for the guy who runs the show. He goes and gets cost segregation explaining to his investors all of these benefits. But most of the time they do not explain the end situation, the exit point that at exit point that cost segregation essentially comes back and you have to return your benefits so why we are doing that so first plain and simple it may not look it may not sound very nice but the best benefit of that is it makes the syndicator look good because 
think about that. If you are bringing into your syndication 20 high, uh, high earners who are looking for uh, tax beneficial use of their money, like let's say doctors, you know, your doctors, dentists, engineers, like all of those high W-2 or high uh, personal income people. And you are telling them, look, we are going to get that passive property. You don't have to do anything except to invest. And imagine if you have to tell them, but well, there will be a little bit of extra tax every year. A lot of these people will tell, no, thanks. What I'm looking for is tax shelter. Okay. So mm -hmm. is it sheltering my taxes? And people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those benefits. Again, I don't like misleading representation. That is misleading representation because here is what is happening. If you get that K1 with the loss and you are a passive investor and saying as a game, as an example, okay, so you are a doctor. Okay. So you are getting like 300 uh, salary as your W2 and you get this investment and you get some passive investment in apartment complex and you get that format that shows a loss. Don't expect that that loss will reduce your tax. Like I would like syndicators to be very upfront with their passive investors saying it's not going to happen. It's not going to reduce that. It only because you have 300 income from W2, the passive losses that come through that K1 form from the syndication is not going to make a dent on your income tax bill for that year. Now, if it was a positive number, then it, then your tax goes up. Nobody wants that. But if it's zero or below, it just keeps you at your W2 tax, but does not put it lower. Why? Because there are rules, rules called passive activity limitations. So those rules prevent you from taking those deductions. Even so, you have the loss, but you cannot take that. It all goes into the future. Yes, it will all even out in that year of sale. Yes, eventually it will be uh, usable, but not during the years that you invest. Knowing that the more sophisticated syndicators, the people who are more experienced and more upfront with their investors, all they want to do is drop that income to zero. Because as long as your net income after all expenses, so you take your rents from your apartment complex or uh, commercial building, whatever that is, and you subtract all your operating costs and you subtract depreciation. If you are already at zero after all of that, you really don't need cost segregation at that point. Mm -hmm. Because if your income is already zero, then when you distribute K1s, as long as they show zero, there is no difference for your investors, even if you push it down to negative. So you can put cost segregation and put it from zero deep into the negative. So now your K1 looks good. Those doctors receive K1s with huge negative number, but they cannot benefit from that. So we are creating, so if you need to use cost segregation to push it down to zero, then it's good. Now, it depends what kind of passive investors you have. And that's when it gets tricky because some of the passive investors might be able to use that. Example is, let's say they have other K1s and those K1s have positive numbers. Mm. Like from whatever, like let's say they're in oil and gas and have some good K1 positive distribution. 
they could very well use negative K1 numbers from that syndication, but not everybody's in that situation. So when you initially get your investors on board and talk about that, it's good to understand what their needs are tax-wise, that their expectations are good, because for some people it can be very, very helpful. And for others, others is like your bread and butter situation is if all they have is W2, no, negative K1 doesn't really help them. If they have other sources to offset, yes. So does it benefit um, for the passive investor who cannot use the the negative number against their W-2, does it benefit them to carry that loss forward to the sale of the property or considering their depreciation recapture tax, is that ultimately just turning it into, is it just bumping up the tax rate from right. capital gains a l- up a little no. bit? To, first, to oversimplify that, it won't benefit them, so to speak, because what you have is you have a big loss right now, which later turns into a big gain and sort of sort of becomes a wash. Mm. It does not exactly become a wash. So let's like discuss so what, what the benefits could be. So benefit number one, it could be some passive investors can benefit from those losses today. Again, depending on their situations, some can. That's number one. Number two, uh, those who cannot benefit, what they have is they possibly have a little bit of difference in rate. Now, that gets highly complicated, very technical discussion, like don't want to you know, bore people with my trade right now. But basically what can happen is you can take a deduction against uh, your ordinary rate and that deduction could be let's say at uh, 32% rate and then when you recapture it it's uh, capped at 25 so here you get like 7% differential in your rate so you can play on that a little bit now if you get those deductions now you get time value of money so for five years you are sitting on that cash that you saved again, provided that it can benefit you. And even though later, five years down the road, you have to repay, but you had the use of that money for five years. That matters if it's if it's significant, significant chunk of money. So it's not useless. Like I'm saying, so number one is if your if your syndication has a positive number positive net income using normal depreciation then you definitely want to use cost segregation to drop it to zero so that is like primary benefit so you don't have an increase in taxes until the year of sale but even if you already are at zero it still can benefit like i said again to recap in those situations it can benefit some partners in some situations it can if you take that, create that time value of money, and you have a little bit of benefit on the rate differential, if if your situation is uh, if that situation is applicable, the challenge is that you know in syndication, even if you have ten people, it's almost guaranteed that the interests of the ten people would be different. Tax situations yes. will be different, so it's very hard to find ten people 
for exactly on that same page and saying, oh, absolutely, none of us cares about extra deductions because all we have is just W2. Possible, but not, not very common. Usually there will be at least one guy, often it's the syndicator himself, to saying is, but I can use that. <laughs> so for me, for me, it's beneficial and that makes the decision. Again, I'm not saying do it, don't do it. I'm saying is when you do it, I prefer very uh, balanced disclosure, which not only tells you the benefits, but only tells you those benefits may not be applicable in your particular case. I think it's a it's a great point. And, and you know, it's important that we understand and go into these things clear headed. And uh, you know, that's why I wanted to have the conversation today. Um, now, regarding these losses, I wanted, also wanted to ask for a passive investor who files or is able to file as a real estate professional, are they able to, say it's a, a doctor and their spouse is a realtor or whatever, so that way they meet the requirements to file as a real estate professional, are they able to use those passive losses against their you know, joint income? In my introduction, I said that I'm the black belt in real estate taxation, <laughs> but I'm still an accountant, you know, mm. even though. And when you talk to an accountant, you know, there is one answer to every question you ask. Yeah. Do you know what that answer is? Uh, it when depends. You talk to an, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Taylor. Yeah, that's, that's the correct answer to any question you ask an accountant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, except one. Like if you ask accountant, like, do I have to pay your bill now? The answer is yes. <laughs> I, I never say I never say it depends. I think yes, you have to. Okay. All other questions are it depends. And uh, it depends on the situation. You brought up a very tricky issue that really is getting too technical, but basically the answer is a conditional yes. If you can qualify as a real estate professional under some situations you might be able to do that but that's not a no-brainer because in order to accomplish that what you would have to do is make an election to aggregate all your real estate activities into one there is a special election and it's kind of sounds like what the heck he's talking about like if you don't know those details you know that's accounting speak that's not very clear but all I want to say about that election that every blog out there says, yeah, absolutely, that's what you have to do. That's not a harmless thing. It's not completely harmless. It has negative side to that. So that election can backfire on you. So under the right circumstances, if you have a real estate professional, if you make that election and that election is helpful to you, then the answer is yes. But in some of those situations, we'll look at that and advise our clients to not make that election, even if it's available, because it can, it can have negative effect, not just, uh, not just positive. You know, it's like one of those things. So I think, so is it good or is it bad? You know what? It reminds me like any any nutritional advice. Like you read that, <laughs> you read that call and I'm saying is like yeah. what? Like you know, fat is bad for you, and then they're like entire diets based on fat, like mm-hmm. where it's a primary thing, or salt is awful for you, or no, salt is necessary for you. So depends which YouTube video you watch. You are saying <laughs> is it's good for you or it's bad for you. So to me, it's like kind of accounting, like tax planning strategies are the same way. 
they're excellent for some people and not so much for others. That's why people like me exist, you know, <laughs> essentially. Nice. Okay. Interesting. Well, I appreciate that right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Michael, I have three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, I did not have prepared answers. So like it, it wasn't a presidential debate when they give me <laughs> the questions in advance. So. These aren't gotcha questions. It's all right. Ah! Okay. I will say, can I say it depends three times? <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, that might be a little weaselly. We might not, we might not like that answer. These are, these are subjective anyway. It's about yours. Okay, go for it. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment that I made other than my education. Uh, the best investment I made was actually uh, in Apple stock. Oh, nice. Many years ago, and that was pretty, well, uh, it does not have a good, well, that story has bad ending. It has good start, but bad ending. It's like a good start was that I bought it at a great price before, and then like the next year, one of those, uh, uh, one of those oil guys uh, from uh, one of the Arab countries, they bought Apple stock, and I was reading them saying, ha, that famous investors bought it for $2 more than I bought it. The problem is he, he still holds it, and I had to sell it at some point, and ah. I regret it. And I regret it. I don't own it anymore. Ah, you know, I wish I did. Wow. Well, if you uh, still made money on it, then, then that's a good thing. Yeah. On the other side of that, we had the best investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment that I ever made. Ooh, excellent question. Well, the same one because I sold it. <laughs> I, I, would, I would use the same example because the famous, you know, when you, when they ask Warren Buffett what is uh, you know what his favorite holding period was, he said forever. And uh, it, I actually would use that question instead of talking about my personal. I want to share a story of my uh, of a friend of mine. Go ahead. If you if you let me, because I think that that's very that's more helpful than talking about my own mistakes. Okay, the story was that I I have this friend, and behind him was a framed picture of a house, like in his office. And I asked, what that's you know, like, why? Like, what is the story? And he said, oh, it used to be my house. And saying, so why? Like, is it? Why do you have it framed and behind you? He said, here is why. He said, I bought this house, and he gave me a year. Like he said, like that year, like, let's say it was 1965, whatever, like that year was like an older guy, you know, and he said, it's okay. So I bought it in this year and I paid, I don't remember numbers. I would lie to you if I told you, but let's say 400, 400K back then. And then 20 years later, I sold it for 400K. And look there in small print and when he said, like in that frame, it wasn't just a picture, it was a listing from MLS. And let's see what is, what is it listed for now? And I forever kick myself for having sold it. So I framed it and called it behind me as a reminder to never ever sold a property again. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, it's the ones that do well that you sell that that are really the worst. Yes, and then they, and then they do even and better. Better, yeah. My favorite question here at the end of the show is: What is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? 
in business and investing, the most important question was to trust your gut. Honestly. Okay, like I could I could probably like fire 10 random, no, not 10 random, like 10 unrelated answers to that question, but one that comes right now, and it comes because of uh, certain situation we just discussed with a client. Okay, we had a we had recently a consultation with a client and uh, what they did is okay they had a sale uh, they had a good piece of property that appreciated very high and it was right before the coronavirus struck us right before that they had a contract and at that point uh, they decided that you know what they could do a little bit better if they hold on to that and they had a that maybe they should go but then they what happened is they wanted to sell, they wanted to close on that, but they went to one of the mastermind meetings, talked to their bodies and they say, and they said, well, no, you can do better right now in that market. Don't rush like hold another month. So they did hold another month. They did hold it for another month and then Corona came wow. and that whole thing collapsed, that contract is out. Now he wished that he could sell it for, like 70% of what that contract was for, and he can. Still holding to his property. And he's saying, but I wanted to sell that. What <laughs> I, did is I, got in, I wanted to close, I got influenced by my buddies, you know, in that mastermind group, because they shamed me into that. And I'm saying, oh no, like we ran comps in that area, you could do better. And he said, and I wanted to close on that. And that's like, actually not the first story that we hear about it so i'm saying is like yes do that here is an example like my my personal story is that it's like okay i'm sitting here uh in my office right now like in in the office building where my office is for the last 10 years and prior to that i was working out of my home office a lot of people on the podcast right now would probably relate to that yeah and i always had that feeling and saying is like well it might go better if I have a real office and I waited too long. And when I got it, I'm saying, I should have gotten it you know, <laughs> five years earlier when I first thought about it. So that's back to my lesson. I think when you feel something should be done, trust your, trust your gut feeling, do it. If you want to get into something, if you like the property, go for it. You know, go do it, find a way don't just sit and overanalyze how those things could play out. Move, and I don't remember who said it, but I recently read, I think on Facebook, somebody was quoting a guy way smarter than I am, and he said is that you, you lose the most, not from bad decisions, but from indecision. Mm. And yeah. that, ring, that rings very true to me from my personal experience and from that of hundreds of real estate investors that we are working with. Wow, I love that. Michael, thank you for joining us today and, and sharing all of this. I think it's important to see the other side of everything and understand pros and cons of anything in our investing strategy. And you brought that to us today with this uh, cost segregation discussion. If folks wanna get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, I'm very easy to find. Okay, you just uh, Google Black Belt and Real Estate Taxation or just go directly on my website and our tax firm is called REI Tax Firm. 
RI, like real estate investment, very simple. So reitaxfirm.com. That's our website. You know, you can also very easily find me on Facebook, on bigger pockets, or any play like on 25 different podcasts, like anywhere where people talk about real estate. That's what I love to do. Great. I love it. And uh, links will be in the show notes too. And I'll be sure to put a link to your bigger pockets post as well if folks want to go back and read through it. It's another. Please uh, do. Yeah, informed our discussion here. Really appreciate you joining us today. Everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show and it is very much appreciated. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. Hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.